Welcome to season four of the Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Hey, Joel Tolbert. <laughs> How about it, Rabbi Eric? How are you, buddy? Oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. I've been a a single parent all week, but Emily is on a plane back, and I'm excited. How how do you do clergy things when you're single parenting? Oh, well, I can tell you this. I sent lots of emails last night at about 10 p.m. Um, I may have even sent some at about 5 or 6 a.m. I'm not sure. Phone calls don't happen then, but certainly emails do. And then uh, they are thankfully in daycare during the day. So so that that doesn't hinder things other than my exhaustion level, which, you know, does not get does not instantly go back to uh, energetic uh, once I drop them off at daycare. Despite the Jewish prayer for God to renew us throughout the night, um, I do not feel as renewed as I probably will tomorrow morning. But um how are you? I'm all right. Well, while you and I are not that far off in age, I'm a I am older than you. That's fair. I'm older, but I love it that we're this much farther apart in parental age. That my yeah, kids of course are you love grown it. and launched, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's semi independent, and you're having to battle <laughs> toddlers and infants. Uh, oh, I Listen. I get some real entertainment out of hearing you oh, moan I- through that. Oh, I bet you do. <laughs> I bet I listen. We just had the La Tabla lunch. There's plenty of clergy I can record with Joel Tolbert. That <laughs> God forbid, I do not want to lose you, my friend. But I, I, if I can move us from the jocular to the serious for a second, we actually did have a, a little bit of a of an incident. Um, you know, you may know that. Um, in recent weeks, there's been kind of a spate of anti-Semitic activity and some white supremacy supremacist groups and neo-Nazi groups were calling for what the media deemed the National Day of Hate on Saturday. And, um, you know, there, there was no violence, physical violence uh, that occurred, but there were uh, anti-Semitic pamphlets that were strewn about one of the neighborhoods in Athens and um Several congregants got them and they don't seem to be targeted to individual families, but they were, you know, throughout the throughout the neighborhood. And, you know, as horrible as that is, the response from the interfaith community and the leadership in Athens has been not surprisingly amazing, but amazing nonetheless. And including a call from the mayor Um, personally, you know, to me saying that, you know, the police chief is already aware of it and the ADL is, it's been reported to the ADL and, you know, different folks from churches and and interfaith organizations, but definitely put a, um, put a kind of a reality check on the week for me a little bit in in not the most positive of ways. Mm -hmm. I did think about you. um, I, I had two podcasts that appeared and they both made me think about you and your community this week. One was the the synagogue in New York City who decided on this hate day, National Day of Hate, that they would have Shabbat outside on the steps, in the public, in your face, uh, folk. And I loved it. I uh, There was some real risk there, some real danger there. 
Um, But it was, it seemed like a very beautiful way to not just peacefully resist, but aggressively resist hate in our world. And then the second podcast I was listening to was talking about how um, even still today, people of color, especially black people in America, struggle in their bodies from the inherited health detriment of the hate that they have suffered and the extra racism that our system has put on them for 200 years. And I began to realize in your perspective, this day of hate um, is going to affect you and your people. And it's you're going to feel it, much like the people of color probably feel hate every day. You're going to uniquely feel it in a in a stronger way on that day. Y'all are always targets in America for some strange reason from a corner of American society, but that day would really emphasize it. So you were you and your people were on my heart for sure. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, always lots to say about that. But uh, unfortunately, anti-Semitism is nothing new. And as I tell congregants and frankly myself, you know, the best way to combat anti-Semitism is by living our authentic Jewish lives. And sometimes that does mean um, being aggressively uh, Jewish in the, in meaning like not hiding who we are, being proud of who we are, living our lives peacefully and loving our brother and sister and, and all those things. But, um, yeah. Yay. Yeah. And as a literal uh, study, we have a Tuesday morning group that meets at one of our retirement homes communities over here. Uh, I meet with 10 or 12 men and women, uh, and we are studying Sabbath, what it means to do Sabbath right now. Uh, the And the word there for celebrating Sabbath, this at the last lesson, was hospitality, um, the call for Sabbath to be hospitable. Um, and there was a uh, an understanding of the word under hospitality was philoxenia. And philo is a type of love. Uh, if you think about all the Greek words for love, if you've like ever- philosophy. Yes, 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 exactly. There's philos love, and there's amor love, and there's eros love, right? Uh, agape love, all these different kinds of love. And then xenia. Um, and xenia is the same root as xenophobia. I was about to guess stranger. Yes, yes fear of the other, the different, the stranger. So um, hospitality, Sabbath, has built into the command in both Exodus and Deuteronomy uh, a command to love the other, the outsider, the stranger. Um, and so I was trying to reinforce that with my Christian studiers. And to help, I had a, a female reform rabbi on YouTube do the prayer that women say that opens Sabbath. Um, and she, The candle Yes, and she described lighting the two candles, one for the Exodus version and one for the Deuteronomy version of the, of the command. And then she described lifting the cup of the, of the vine, and she broke the challah bread. And so I brought two candles. I brought a cup. I brought a loaf of challah. We let her bless the Sabbath for us, and then we shared the the bread and the cup, uh, much like we would do at a Lord's Supper and I, or a communion celebration, a sacramental meal for us. And I I tried to explain to them, see they they aren't that other y'all, our Jewish brothers and sisters. Yeah, they they are us. We are them. Like that they light two candles, they lift a cup, they break challah bread. That's 
we do that. That they are us. We are them. Come on. Um, and they loved. I don't know. It was different for us to just talk about it when we did it. Um, it, it helped them crash the traditions of Judaism and the traditions of Christianity into one another in a way so that it didn't feel strange anymore. Um, I hope I wasn't. I like that. I hope I wasn't uh, doing a bad thing and you know accommodating or whatever misappropriating culture. Uh, but I was I was trying to let the rabbi say it, not me. Although, who was it? Uh, gosh, I can't remember her name. I'll send you the YouTube or I'll post it in the, and in was the it, podcast comments. So was it live or you just showed your people this YouTube? Got yeah, it. Okay. And she just showed – yeah, she has recordings of how to help her um, her congregants open Sabbath at home. And so she has these little Got YouTube it. training Got sessions, it. right? Um, and the, Totally. Right. And the only thing I didn't bring was the little box for coins at the offering. Very cool. So, uh, speaking of what clergy do, <laughs> see, I was listening, Joel. I know what we're talking about today. Uh, you want to you want to introduce it? Sure. Yeah. We've so so far we've kind of dove into a few topics um, from the Israel Judah Jew point of view, and then last week we did just a few topics from the Christian Gentile Goyim uh, point of view. Today we wanted to look at what it looks like to try or to be called or appointed or ordained as a leader in those communities. What what does it look like from a clergy seat to be a leader in those two communities? What is the expectation of the community on its leader? And that may be different in Eric's and my traditions. What are the expectations we have on ourselves to lead our people? And that may be similar or different. Um, what are the powers that clergy have and do not have in our roles? What are the powers that our people assume we have or should have? Um, and so we're just trying to uh, put beside one another the two different ways that our uh, faith communities look at the role of clergy leadership and see where where we overlap and where we're different. Yeah, there's so much there. How do you, how do you want to start? Ah, well, I, here's an idea. I I do a new member class. I, I might have been telling you about this in previous episodes. We've got some folks in there right now. One was a, a monk for a while, a Catholic priest slash monk. Um, he's left that 40-some-odd years ago, and he's been married for 30-some-odd years now, uh, a, a gal from the UCC, United Church of Christ, another gal that was raised Presbyterian and then left the church altogether, and then a young a young guy, teenager, that was baptized and raised mostly Episcopalian. So they entered the Presbyterian church with such radically different expectations of what clergy is, what a pastor does, the powers that a pastor has. And I am constantly having to pre-teach people before they come into this community, hey, you probably have assumptions about what a clergy's power, a role is here, and I need to clarify with you the powers and roles that I have and that Caitlin have, he, uh, she's the other pastor, that we actually have here so that you won't expect something of us we don't have the power to do, nor will you not expect something of us we do have the responsibility for. So I am constantly tr um, trying to pre-teach folks as they enter our community what the clergy role is and isn't. And I notice that sometimes if a person, a member in the community gets upset 
with clergy, it's not always about the content of what I did or didn't do or say or didn't yeah. say. It's often about their expectation of what they Absolutely. they thought I should have done or should have said Absolutely. versus what I'm allowed to or even encouraged to do or say. And I and it your expectations of yourself and you know you you you're at a place where you supervise another pastor that's going to be different than in another church where there's a different senior. Um yeah, I mean I I actually find this to be the um, slippery part of being clergy, but in in a way that I actually like. Um, it, it it can be a struggle sometimes because different different people who were brought up differently with regard to Judaism, who observe differently, and just different personalities. I mean, we have the joke: two Jews, three opinions, right? Like like everyone's going to want something else of their rabbi, and at different times. Right. So when someone's going through uh, an illness crisis, they want something totally different from their clergy than when, you know, their child is turning 12 and preparing for bar bat mitzvah. And and all of those, you know, I have to think of all of those things with regard to the the whole of 170 families. Um, And, you know, every now and again, the individual outweighs the community and every now and again, the community outweighs the individual and picking when, which is the case, is really tricky and trying my darndest to have the integrity that it's not necessarily about what I want, but what I think is best for the congregation. And those are not always the same. Um, And it's also interesting because, you know, I was thinking, you know, Jews think a lot about tensions and dialectics. So it's like on the one hand, I part of my job is bringing to people, bringing people together for events, and at the same time, I'm not a cruise director, right? <laughs> but part part of my job is counseling and talking with people, and hopefully providing some measure of support and help when people are are dealing with a crisis, whether it's a sickness or a mental illness or or whatever it is. And at the same time, I am not a social worker or a therapist. And so finding all of these balances in, in not in each interaction, I mean, it's not like you find the balance and then, okay, I got it. Um, because you cannot control or I cannot control what expectations people have. Um, but I can try to be as clear of what I can do, what I'm, what I'm willing to do. Um, but it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Let's see if you and, and I not, can name some – what are some assumptions that people who are not clergy have of clergy that you and yeah, I have I mean, figured so, out, okay, those aren't fair. Those are false assumptions. What are some of those assumptions on that list, you think? Oh, that are false assumptions. Yeah. Um, I think the idea that we're always on – you know, people sometimes say it as a joke, but – the truth is, and, and I cast no aspersions on this because this is just human nature. And uh, frankly, I'm the same way when when a person is dealing with something that is acute and time sensitive, they want their clergy there now. Doesn't matter if it's their day off. It might not even matter if they're out of town or if they're sick. And, and th- that's a struggle because I absolutely want to be there for someone in such a time. 
um, you know, in an actual emergency. But I, I but this idea that um, we always and I don't know that anyone explicitly says it, but I but I I do think there's a there is a sense that that the clergy has to place his or her community above other things, even sometimes their own family. And of course, sometimes, yes, that's true. When I have a board meeting, you know, you have you have your your meetings at night. Like I I have meetings, I mean, more than one, but like our board meetings are the first Tuesday of every month at 7 p.m. If there was a play that came to town, if my favorite band came to town on the first Tuesday at 7 p.m., like that's a no-go. But you know, if, but there are other instances where, where I will say, no, my family is going to take precedence tonight or this week or, you know, finding those things. So I don't know. That's one. I didn't phrase that very well, but what what do you think? Yeah. So I hear in that the expectation is that we are 24 seven available 365 a year. And, and while that is part of the job, like you and I both agreed, we are going to Drop everything and go. Um, what's, what's interesting is typically people that love us are the ones that expect us to show up quickly, uh, right? So it's okay. The people that don't really like us don't care if we come or not. <laughs> so um, it's a lot easier to go uh, in a hurry to somebody you know loves you and wants you there. But I've also found it um, a, a necessary thing to go to somebody that doesn't really like me. That wasn't necessarily oh, expecting me. That didn't even think to tell me they were going to be in the hospital. But I drop everything and go anyway, right? And stick my nose into their hospital room anyway. Uh, and and those are not. That's not a burden. Uh, it, you know, it's it can be an inconvenience. It can be a rat's moment uh, for me. There have there was a time where the Jill and I and the boys took off when they were younger and on a vacation and. We got three days into a five-day trip, and I had to come home. Um, and yeah. and when we left, we kind of knew that was possible. So I had prepared them, prepared them, and then sure. we had to turn around and come back a little early. And that was okay. Everybody, everybody understood it. Um, but there is an assumption that pastors I, – I think the way I would phrase it is there's an assumption that the pastor that we are – the pastor is just one of our many roles, but the pastor, the pastoral presence role, um, that we can be more places at the same time than is feasible. I, yep. I find, I, I just find that people say, "What you know? I, I don't understand. Why didn't you go visit them? Why didn't you go visit her?" And and if I look, there's probably between twenty and fifty people. Like maybe they're homebound, maybe they had surgery last week, maybe I just heard something about something going on in their life with one of their daughters, or maybe her husband is having a second surgery, maybe if we're not sure, or maybe she's thinking about quitting her her job at that school and going to a different school. And so I've got 20 or 30 or 40 folks that are on little little tidbits, little flags, and and I try to send a text or an email or a a tap or I try to bring it up at worship or after worship and fellowship hour or if I see them in a meeting, and and there's I find that I can never make that list go to zero. It, Absolutely, it, it's infinitely large. And and then when somebody pops me on the wrist for not visiting so and so soon enough, the guilt I feel for that is pretty big.
I don't want to sound, I mean, maybe I am going to sound like a jerk and I'm going to wish that you edit this out, but depending on circumstance, now there are times, there have absolutely been times where in my own integrity, I should have visited someone and I didn't. And that person was really disappointed and I found out and I felt guilty. Absolutely. But more often, I, I, I feel frustrated because as, as you said, it, it's not going to be zero and there are other obligations we have. I mean, the truth of the matter is it could be a full-time job visiting homebound congregants. I mean, not doing worship, not doing adult ed, not doing youth programming. And this is where being a clergy, I think, is incredibly difficult because the person that makes those decisions is us. Mm -hmm. Like, what is an emergency? Can I visit this person later this week or do I need to do it right now? And if it is right now, I might be sacrificing something else that's going to anger someone else. And is that okay? Mm -hmm. And like those decisions are constantly being made either explicitly or implicitly. And, you know, I, I once had a kind of an argument with a lay leader. They were in, they were in the office doing some office work, volunteering, and the, the office phone rang. And the secretary wasn't there. And they said, aren't you going to answer the phone? I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something. I have no idea what that phone call is. It could be spam. It could be, it could be anything. I know how important the work I'm doing is now. Why should I stop doing that for something that's an unknown? If it is an emergency, they're going to leave a message and I will call them back. And so like, you know, things like that are, uh, challenging something. There it is. That's the other was, congregational expectation is not just that we go, it's how fast or how soon we show up to the thing that they've judged is important. And and here's the the line that I've come up with. I don't know if it works for you, but um the 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 congregants are not the customers. Um it when when church is healthy for me, the members of the church are not the customers. And I'm not the service provider um, where they can have an expectation of me and what they give to the church in dollars times gets them something in return from me and the rest of the pastoral staff or the church leadership. Um, when unhealthy church has that kind of setup where a member or an attendee expects Well then it's just then it's just like cult of personality and who's donating more money and my money gets me that yeah not yeah. not a fan. Well then it's a a contract or a transaction more than it is a covenant and a relationship. So I I tend to say that the audience uh, and the customer of church is God. And and we are co-workers here. Th this is the reason we are here is we are family and we are co-workers and we are colleagues. And I say every Sunday morning, I say, Caitlin and I may be the pastors of this church, but if you're visiting with us, you're sitting amongst the ministers of this church. The the real ministers of this church are her members. And they are like yeah, that. they are here to serve. Well, something something that um I've, I've always kind of known it implicitly, but it was nice to hear from an outside source. We're, we're getting ready to do a board uh, leadership training on a Sunday in April for a few hours. Um, and and the whole issue of kind of pastoral care came up and some congregants sometimes being upset. And and this person who's, who's a leader for the reform movement, not a rabbi, but kind of works with congregations, with leadership and rabbi, lay leader, 
relationships and that sort of thing said, the, the rabbi or, you know, our context clergy cannot be the only point of contact for a congregant. That, that is just, you're doomed to fail. It doesn't matter how wonderful the clergy is or how much they contact them, that they cannot be the only, the only point of contact. Um, but I, something interesting that people may not know about rabbis, certainly in terms of Jewish law, you know, when you talk about like what we're qualified to do, what we have power over in Judaism, you, you don't need a rabbi for almost anything. And that includes wedding, funeral, baby naming. You need, um, you know, according to Jewish law, you need someone who follows Jewish law and someone who is kind of of good standing. Um, you know, we could, of course, talk about what that means. It it tends to be the case that, you know, most baby namings a rabbi does, most funerals a rabbi does, but weddings, and I don't know if you've seen this, but there has been a definite shift where now wedding couples will find a friend that kind of got ordained online. Um, you know, someone who, who is a dedicated congregant in our congregation got ordained online so that he could perform his daughter's wedding. And people ask me, well, are you offended? And I'm like, no. <laughs> it, I, I mean, I have colleagues where that this really bothers them, the kind of that they feel like clergy should officiate at these things. And I... I don't know. It's not. It's not my bailiwick. It it doesn't really mm -hmm. bother me. Um, the one thing that I absolutely am a gatekeeper of that I don't love because it is a heavy responsibility is basically I am ultimately an arbiter of if someone can convert. So when someone wants to convert to Judaism. Um, you know, there's a process of I meet with that person, they go to the services, and after a few weeks, I will tell them kind of officially whether I think they're an appropriate candidate or not. And there have been times, not recently, but there have been times where I have felt for whatever reasons uh, that no, the answer is no. And that is a heartbreaking thing to do. And it's something... Um, like I, I feel the responsibility of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that. We I do not have that power to decide if somebody is becomes a Christian or not. It it sits with. Oh, and let me just interrupt for one second, Joel. I'm sorry. Now I I may decide no, and they might go to another rabbi who says yes, and that's totally fine. Correct. So I don't. Yeah. So just to be clear with anyone listening, I don't speak for all of Judaism. I just speak for, will I convert you? And if you, you know, and I, and when I have told people, no, I've said, you know, here are other rabbis either in town or near town. You're free to contact them. But I, that was an important to add. That is, yeah, that, that helps a lot. For us, what you're talking about, like, while um, in some Catholic traditions, a wedding, a funeral, um, a baptism, which is, you know, an initiation, right? Or a, a confirmation day, a, a day when the, um, a person's baptized membership becomes an active membership in the, uh, um, in the church. Those are moments that are almost sacramental to a lot of Christian denominations, not us per se. We only have two sacraments. It's baptism and Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist, whichever term you want to use. Um, and while I have the I have the power and responsibility to preside at baptisms or Lord's Supper, our board decides when and if we do those. So uh, if a person comes and they say, I want my child to be baptized, and the board says we do it, then I do it. Um, 
except, hmm. except. Um, we have a, a theology behind that that never lets us re-baptize anyone. Um, so it, let's say somebody was baptized in some other random Christian denomination with some random amount of water. Maybe they were dunked. Maybe they were sprinkled. Maybe they were squirted with a squirt gun. I don't care. Um, and, and there was uh, at least the triune formula, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Those words were said. That baptism counts for all of life to us forever. One time only, no matter what, period, enough. If somebody came and wanted to be rebaptized, and even our session, like enough, yeah, and our session, our board decided to vote. Okay, let's do that. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it, and I have the power to withdraw myself from that. Um, so it's it's a weird spot. As for weddings, I think the reason people choose friends to do weddings is because pastors and preachers suck at weddings way too often. <laughs> oh my gosh, like. It, you know, you got to be good at this, y'all. You got to have fun with this. You got to know the couple. You absolutely. You got to know what's important the to them, is, what's funny to and them. Here, and here's the other thing about being clergy that I think people don't necessarily understand. And again, it's something that I love about being clergy is there. There are so many different skill sets, and you could be great at one and not great at another. Like there are rabbis who like their thing is pastoral care, like we were talking about before. Like they visit someone and it's just amazing. That, I mean, I think I'm good at it, but I would not say I'm great at it. My my strength, I think, is in life cycle events and like, you know, kind of on the bema delivering sermons. Um, you know, everyone has things they like and everything, everyone has things that they're better at than others. And there's so many pieces of being a clergy. And then not to mention like different age groups, like nobody works with two-year-olds in the same way that they work with 90-year-olds. And some people work better, you know. I mean, there's just so many facets and taking that into consideration is is important. Yeah, I think that's the other, um, and, and you know, not. But you're so right about. Sorry, you're just you're so right about clergy <laughs> officiating. But they suck at funerals too. Like I have seen yeah. clergy who they really don't know the person that they're speaking about at the burial. They've got like this mechanized habit of saying a certain prayer a certain way, and and whatever the great story of God is, they're they're not saying it like it's still true, and and like they really believe it on this day at this moment with these people. They're and I'm not sure they do. They're like running out of gas and they're getting their 300 bucks and they're, you know, going home. Uh, so whenever I have the privilege of being invited to be a part of a funeral or a wedding, I insist that I get some real one-on-one time with, if it's a funeral, with the family, right? Hopefully with the person it well in advance. Uh, and, and that's sometimes hard. Like, you know, I've been here three years and I probably know every homebound person a little if you make me do all of their funerals this year, I'm going to depend on the family to help me piece together their life story. I I know just a, a oh always. yeah I know a smidgen I, I, about all of them. I don't know yeah. enough yet to do the funeral for any of them. It feels like and and so that that special time with the family. Same with a wedding. I 
if if I'm if a family says, all right, we want you to do our wedding or whatever, I'm like, great. Will you let me please do your premarital counseling? That's five or six sessions, about an hour each. I can do an online inventory. I get some stuff about you. I ask you a bunch of questions and we talk it through. Everything from sex to money to you know yeah. everything. I do a pre- do you do preparing? Yes. And, and it's, it's yeah, so yeah. helpful, right? Because then you get to know the people, what their sense of humor are, what their buttons are, what, how they fight and why they fight and the things that they fought over and the things they haven't fought over yet. And then you craft a wedding that goes with that. And so, you know, the mom and dad, they go, oh, my gosh, you really know our daughter. You really know her partner. You really know our son, whatever. Yep. And like, yes, that's what I want to hear is that I – I spent the time to look for the unique story in you and how it hopefully weaves itself into the greater God story, uh, it, you know, flowing through our world. That's what I, I think people don't understand about you and me. Our job is not to feed them what they're hungry for. I, I, they want a something from us. I, hey, I, I want you to do this and this and this and this and this. I want you to come visit me or don't. I want you to do my wedding in 15 minutes or don't. I, wh- they have an expectation. That's not our job. Our job is to give them something holy and beautiful that connects them to a life that is bigger and deeper and more true. And what they want yep. isn't always deeper and bigger and more true. Sometimes they just want, you know, fast food. Well, and this is this is the challenge, I think, to and I think something that you and I particularly share in common um, in that uh, we are a more liberal and interpretive tradition. And so and the reason that that's important is because, you know, if I was and this is an extreme example, but, you know, if I was the Rebbe in the shtetl. The congregant comes up to me and says, Rabbi, you are the authority. Tell me if I am allowed to eat this concoction I made. Is it kosher? I tell them yes or no. And regardless of their feelings, regardless of what they want, they will follow what I say. That is almost antithetical to the way our community is today. And that's not a bad thing. I don't want to be that authority. Um nor and even if I did, no one's going to listen to me anyway. Not in that way. So, you know, in many respects, um, I'm, you know, especially when you know we've talked about this before. But my synagogue is is run by a board of lay leaders that are elected by the congregation, and you know they have fiduciary responsibility and hiring and firing responsibility and things like that. And and um, it, it is a tricky balance to figure out, okay, what what is it that each of them wants as individuals? But again, thinking about the greater good in the greater congregation. And, you know, in many conversations, when we debate something um, where there's, you know, a heated argument, uh, I'm, I, I certainly have a voice, but I'm not the decider necessarily. Every now and again, someone will say, well, if this is what the rabbi thinks, it's probably what we should do. And by the way, I don't even <laughs> I don't think that that's what everybody should say all the time. I think with regard to ritual matters, I, I would like it to be said a little more. But like in a finance committee, in a religious school committee, in a sisterhood committee. No, well, I'm not in charge, nor should I be. Um, 
But yeah, but this is, a, you know, and it might sound a little bit like I'm whining or complaining. These are actually things I love about being a rabbi because mm-hmm. what people, I think, don't realize, Jews realize this, I think, but, um, and you could tell me your experience is, I would say the majority of my job, whether it's from home or from a coffee shop or from the actual office or even from the Bema, the majority of my job is about relationships amongst my congregation, either strengthening people's relationships to each other or strengthening people's relationships with me. And yes, there is absolutely God and the Jewish people in there, especially with regard to worship. But, you know, if you looked at my calendar and like talk, thinking about a committee meeting or raising money, it's very much about the community Um, and not, you know, it's not about, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to take it back. It's not about Torah. I mean, it is about Torah in that it's all about Torah with a capital T, but it's not like I spend eight or 10 hours a day talking about Deuteronomy. Right. I'm talking about, oh, you know, this person's in the hospital and, oh, we have this fundraiser coming up. What band should we hire? Oh, that band's not available in this band. I mean, it's those things. Right. Yeah. So I'm I, I think what you're trying to differentiate, maybe I don't, you can tell me if I'm on par. I, I find my role is to give people a a healthier image language of God and what who God is what God wants, what God is doing. And isn't. Yes. And it's to it's to constantly speak and embody who we hope and trust God is and what God wants and what God is doing. Now that comes to fruition in healthy community because that's who God is and that's what God wants and that's what God is doing. That's why Torah is. Torah is so that there can be healthy community, right? That beautiful, healthy, just community. And that there is no difference between slave and free. There is no difference between male and female. There is no difference between inside and outside. The the odd stranger, sojourner, resident alien among you gets the same access to Sabbath rest as the most powerful, wealthy person. And the powerful, wealthy person doesn't get to have Sabbath and command all the slaves and servants and children and girls and blue-collar folk to work so that the wealthy, privileged person gets Sabbath. The command is everybody gets it. And, and that beautiful Torah command to build a healthier, more just community is the reason you and I exist. It's, it's to uh, remind people that God, who God is and what God's doing and what God wants is beautiful, healthy, peaceful, just community, and to convince them to be a part of building that community, not just enjoying its benefits, but stretching that community to where it includes more and more and more people, um, not like conversion include, but just so that they feel the same peace, love, Justice, whether or not they believe, whether or not they're circumcised or baptized, I don't care. I just want them to have the peace and justice and love of God around them and in them. And that comes through communal relationships. And if we can embody that as people of faith, shoot, this world would be changed. 
And, and until we can embody it in a little bitty corner in Athens or in Chestertown, Maryland, for God's sake, well, it's hard to imagine it happening everywhere. But the goal is everywhere. It happens everywhere. That's right. And I think every clergy, when and, we're doing what we're supposed to do, we're building that. We're building a community of peace, I, hope, love, and justice. So something that my previous rabbi in Omaha used to say, was, and I'm going to get it wrong, but it was something like, you know, my, it was something like my paycheck comes from this particular congregation, but my pulpit is the world. And it wasn't an egocentric comment. It was more of like, I am not limiting my rabbinate to, you know, the people who happen to be members of the congregation. Now, that being said, you know, as we say in the congregation, like membership does have certain privileges. And you're like, I, I'm certainly going to visit a member in a hospital or call them more than someone that's not a member that I may know about. But ultimately, I, my, I see my role as serving the Jewish people. The majority of that is within the context of Athens, Georgia, but but this is where I get the impetus for doing interfaith work that you and I have been mm -hmm. involved in and things like that, because, you know, th that's not from the Bema for my congregation, but but it also it helps that my congregation likes that I do those things. Yeah. And they, they themselves are part, you know, la yesterday, you probably remember the yearly event um, that Family Promise does, La Tabla, which is a this huge fundraiser and different organizations um, decorate tables according to a theme. And there's like two to three hundred people in the in the ballroom of the country club. And um, and it was amazing. First of all, we had two tables yesterday, which was really amazing. But to to see that our presence in the community makes a difference and vice versa. You know, and that's just a, that's wonderful. That's frankly how it should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I don't say it quite like your former rabbi buddy in Nebraska, but I often say, look, I'm not a pastor to this church. I'm a pastor from this church to the world, to mm -hmm. the community. Yeah. So uh, occasionally yeah. I'll get somebody like, hey, why didn't you go see Mrs. So and so? And I'm like, well, I was at the homeless task force meeting downtown. Um, and I'm going to go see her on Saturday or whatever, right? You're like, oh, so you put, you know, that homeless task force meeting above her. Well, no, I. it's not a ranking, right? But but if I am on a board of this agency and I'm on a task force in the town to solve homelessness and launch a new 12-month homeless shelter, and I'm working at a, a group here in town that's trying to address racial tensions and issues, Right. And I've got somebody who, you know, had foot surgery. Um, OK, I, you know, I'm going to go see the foot surgery person. But she told me she's OK. Like I'm having surgery Thursday, I hope. Right. Um, well, this is a whole nother conversation that oftentimes it's not the person yes. <laughs> that you didn't visit that's upset. It's the friend on behalf of the person with or without yeah. that person's blessing to even be upset. I mean, that. Yeah. Yeah. That that does happen a lot. And, and here's the – maybe that's the other uh, – one last piece about being a clergy. Hey, y'all, we don't know, uh, <laughs> right? If, I'm so – Amen. Yeah, we we oh don't God. know. We don't know. Like, oh, my gosh, your friend uh, was sick and in trouble or whatever. We don't know that. 
Yeah, I didn't. I didn't take the uh, the uh, psychic class as an elective. Yes. I, I took the please rise, please sit class. So I, I you know, I don't have the ESP. Yeah. And you spend twelve hours a day on Facebook, and we don't. I hate Facebook. I do not go on it. I post stuff to it, but I very rarely consume it, scroll it, absorb it. So if a church member posts on Facebook that they have a something going on in their life, I am not going to see it. I am not going to know about it. If you want me there, tell me and I will come. If you think I should go somewhere, suggest that. And and I will tap the person and see if I can come. But do not assume that I already know something happened just because it's on the rumor mill or on Facebook. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Be direct. And the other thing... And the other thing too, and I actually think people are congregants understand this more and more. I don't know if it's the world we're living in or what it's a function of, but um, or maybe I've just been here ten years and like you know we know each other better. But we are human beings, and everyone, of course, knows that, and everybody says that. Oh, the rabbi, the clergy deserves vacation, but like we get sick. We have bad days. We have kids that have bad days. We maybe are in an argument with our spouse from the night before. And not everything we say, like there's, there are times when I look back on a conversation on something, ooh, I wish I said this differently. I wish I said that differently. That's a human thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, ultimately, hopefully we have less of those <laughs> than we do the days where we do make a really positive difference. But, but that humanity piece is important. Mm-hmm. So uh, just to make sure people realize we love our jobs, uh, Friday morning, I got to have an interracial men's Bible study breakfast. There was about 25 of us, almost 50-50 black and white. We had eggs and bacon and pancakes. And then we talked about a book in the New Testament, Galatians 2, um, how Peter and Paul were in disagreement as to why Peter would sometimes eat with Gentiles and then when his Jewish buddies came around, he would back up from eating with Gentiles. Um, and so there was a discussion at that interracial study why black folks and white folks don't eat together more often. Mm. Why we back up from one another under pressure wow. from our own people to not do that, right? Why it's perceived as maybe a disloyalty or a wannabeism to do that. And then on Saturday night, I sat with the youth of our church and they wanted to talk about gun violence in schools. And our other pastor, Caitlin, had set up a beautiful worship service and study after a meal. I cooked pancakes for them. And then we had dinner. And then, so the pancakes. I know. We had extra batter. Uh, and so then we went to the worship space and they got to honestly share their fears and anxieties about school shootings, what they've been taught, what they haven't been taught that they're going to do anyway. And and they're so brave and they're so smart and deep. And I hate that they have to think like this, but they do. And they're beautiful. Yep. And then Tuesday morning, I sat with the oldest folk in our church and we talked about what it means to love the stranger. That's why I'm clergy right there. Three days, three beautiful moments where people are trying to bend the world back towards healing and health and hope and justice. I 
whew, that's that makes it worth it right there. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, I mean, there is, you know, sometimes people ask, like, is this what you're going to do forever and, you know, or until I retire? And I can't think of something that would give me just personally as much joy and meaning and challenge in the best way when I say challenge. Um while also hopefully making a difference to others. I just can't think of anything. You know, like my original life goal of being, you know, a famous saxophone player, like that would be super fun. <laughs> like it would be a different kind of energy and a different kind of, you know, performance ship. Is that a word? Um, but I don't know. I don't know that it would be as meaningful and it, w- it, it wouldn't stimulate me intellectually or spiritually. It would do other things. But yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely am grateful. Um, maybe not as often as I explicitly should be, but I, I am very grateful to be able to do this work. This job's hard. And I, there are days where I don't think I can do it. Um, but most days I find out, well, even when I think I can't, I, I guess I still can. Absolutely. Thanks for keeping it real today, Eric. Oh, man, you too. You too. Friends and fans out there in the world, if y'all have an idea for an upcoming topic, we've got a couple, three more months in this season, and we've still got a few holes left. Uh, They're filling in, though. So if you've got an idea, get it in quick, and we'll see if we can pencil it in. Next week, I think we'll be on things like uh, ritual and worship, and even sacrament, if that's a word for you. It is a word for us, but uh, we'll look and see what it means to do something uh, with sacred intention um, and put that conversation on the board. Perfect. Well, I will talk to you soon, Joel, and for our listeners, I hope everyone's doing well, keeping it real, and uh, we'll say shalom. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to realreligionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.